You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Uh, welcome to Sojourn. If you don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy and honor to proclaim God's word this morning. Apparently, I was so excited that I turned my microphone on in the back. So, um, but it is good to see you. So I think you heard that uh, come through while Reed was talking. Sorry about that. Uh, still trying to remember everything that I'm supposed to do when I get up here. So um, if you're a guest, just want to say welcome. I'm glad that you're here this morning. And I would just highly encourage you to take any one of those steps of connecting to this community here. Um, We would love to know you uh, beyond just what takes place in these few moments that we have together um, on Sunday. And so highly encourage you to do that. Um, On a personal note, uh, most of you, if not all of you, uh, know that I've been on sabbatical. Um, I simply wanted to say just a a brief thank you before we jump into this morning's text. Uh, It's been uh, a refreshing time, uh, a wonderful time, both for me uh, and for my family. And so uh, I wanted to say thank you for your prayers, for your encouragement along the way. Um, All of it uh, has been received uh, with with a glad heart. And so um, thank you. Uh, And at the same time, we're very excited uh, to be back among you um, for the years to come. And so... Thank you again. Uh, As Reed said uh, just a few moments ago, today begins Holy Week, right? When we celebrate the final days of Jesus' life um, together. And so today is Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem to the acclaim of some, to the bewilderment of others, and to the fear and the schemes of others. And so we'll jump into this text um, right after I say a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Again, thank you for the opportunity uh, to be gathered together uh, with your people. And I thank you, Lord, that um, this morning, although it may seem or feel like any other morning, although it may feel or seem routine, uh, Lord, that you tend to work glorious things through routine and unimpressive things. If nothing else, we will learn that from our text this morning. And so, Father, um, we worship you this morning, uh, and we worship your son Jesus for what he has done on our behalf, and we pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit to be among us, to teach and to instruct and to encourage and to comfort um, and to build us up so that we might all the more show a real and true and accurate picture of your son Jesus to the world that surrounds us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to do it kind of uh, how, I, how I normally do it. We're going to walk verse by verse through the text, and then we will figure out what it is trying to, to say to us this morning. So let's start in verse 1. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say... The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And so here's the scene that we step into, right? We see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, standing on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city. And it's in this moment that he commands his disciples to do something that, again, if we just look at these details here and now, we would think they're fairly innocuous, right? Okay, so he's securing transportation, right? What's the, what's the big deal? 
And so what Jesus does is he commands two of his disciples to go to the nearby town and to essentially commandeer, <laughs> commandeer um, a, a, a colt. A colt so young that it has not been ridden yet. That's why mom comes along with him because we don't want him to freak out, right? So the donkey and the colt tied up together. Jesus says, go get them on my behalf. And it's in verse 3, as he commands his disciples to go and do this task, that he bids them to go in his authority. And this is where things start to get a little bit more interesting beyond the details, right? You don't want to watch someone book an airplane ticket, right? But this is where it gets interesting for us with Jesus. Now mind you, right? Mind you, he could have probably easily ask them to go secure travel on his behalf through some other means, right? A coin here, a friendly relationship there, trade a meal, I don't know. You know, you, there's any, any number of ways that Jesus could have arranged for this to happen, and yet what he chooses to do is he chooses to ask his disciples to go and tell the owner of these animals, the Lord, capital L, needs them. The Lord needs them. And so Jesus here is intentionally asking them to go in this way with this particular phrase. Now this should be striking to us because up to this point, right, Jesus has essentially been a homeless man traveling the region of Galilee, prophesying, healing, preaching, and teaching, right? He's essentially a homeless man that's popular on the outskirts of town, right? Now, when you think of that person, or if we were to even bring that into our sort of modern cultural situation, this isn't a guy that we would have looked at seriously if he had walked up to us and said, hey, I need your car. I got to get somewhere. I'd be like, no, like, you're not insured, probably don't have a driver's license, like you don't look like you've showered today, right? Like for so many reasons, no, right? This isn't something that a backwoods homeless prophet says to somebody. It's something a king says. It's something a king does, right? It's a king who goes to his servants, right, to the peoples of his land and says, I have need of this. Give it to me. And so what begins to happen for us, I think, is that we begin to be clued into more and more of what Jesus is trying to do as we read verse 5. And so this is what it says. Right, verse 4 preceding that says that all of this, this whole situation takes place to fulfill what the prophet spoke. And this is what the prophet spoke. From Zechariah 9.9, Matthew quotes, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so let me just break down what it is that Zechariah is saying to us, right? He says, Say to the daughter of Zion, meaning say to Jerusalem and its inhabitants, and what would he say to them? Your king is coming to you, but he's coming to you in a certain way. He's coming to you humbly. He's coming to you mounted on a donkey. 
on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So not just a donkey, right? But the donkey's kid, the donkey's colt. The child of a beast of burden. So what is Jesus doing in this moment, right? Again, Jesus is, this is no accident. This is not circumstance playing itself out in front of our eyes, right? This is Jesus making intentional steps towards making a certain declaration, which is, which is this, I am that king. I am the king that was coming to you, is now come to you. I'm here. It's me. Right? So Jesus, at this moment in Matthew, is making his most explicit declaration of his kingship, of his messiahship. In this moment, explicitly linking himself to Jewish prophecies of their coming king, the one who would reign in splendor and glory, but who comes in anything but splendor and glory. And so what happens next, verse 6, right? The disciples do as Jesus directs them. They bring the colt and the donkey, and he sits on top of it after the disciples lay their cloaks to make a saddle for him. Now, I want us to really be clued into the, the, the picture that's, that's in front of us right now. Because I think maybe, we're, maybe we've been a part of church for a long time and we, we think of Palm Sunday when you know, the, the Easter pageant happens and there's people dancing down the aisle and uh, you know, stuff like that. And maybe it's a, a smaller version of what's taking place here, but this is massive. Right, Jesus isn't entering Jerusalem alone. We go on to, to hear later on in the following verses that there's a great multitude, right, who are around him. And the crowd gets stirred up just a little bit. And that's because Jerusalem at any given point in time could, could house essentially about 40,000 people. But the time in which Jesus purposes to enter the city of Jerusalem is the beginning of a, of a feast, right? So it's a, a, a time of celebration for the Jews, and it's a feast for which many Jews from outer lying areas would make a pilgrimage into Jerusalem. And during this feast, the Feast of Passover, there could be anywhere from 40,000 all the way up to 250,000 people. So Jesus is not doing this in isolation, right? Much of Jesus' ministry up to this point has been in the backwoods of Israel, among the hillbillies of the day. Obscure, relatively unnoticed, and yet on this day, before crowds of pilgrims who are entering Jerusalem with him, he seats himself upon a colt. Now, I won't go into too much detail, but the festival that they're celebrating is a festival that celebrated Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. That day when the angel of the Lord and his curse passed over Israelite houses because of the blood of the Lamb. That should be a clue as to what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem with a crowd of pilgrims surrounding him who lay out a carpet of their clothing and of branches and they sing songs of praise to him because their king has come. 
And verse 10 tells us that when Jesus finally enters Jerusalem, the whole city shakes. The translation, I think, in the ESV says that the city stirred, but, but uh, a better translation is that it, it quaked, as, it, as in an earthquake, right? In fact, this same word is used on the day that Jesus dies, when it tells us that it shook, the earth shook as he passed away. And then it tells us that everybody in the city was asking themselves one simple question. Who is this? Who is this guy? And so the question for us this morning is, what, what is it that this text, what is it that Matthew is purposing for us to see? What is it that he would call us into, call us to do by what he's writing here? What is it about this particular situation? What is it about this moment in Jesus' life? What is it about this moment in this crucial week of Jesus' life that we need to see and know and be aware of? And I think it's actually really simple. We're being called in this text to see Jesus as who he really is. We're being called to see Jesus as who he really is. He's a different kind of Messiah. He's a different kind of king. In fact, he's not just a king, but he is the king, and we're being called to see him that way. And so my hope this morning is that as we kind of look through some of these details of what it is that Jesus does purposefully and intentionally to make himself known is that we would see Jesus as he truly is. And that maybe, just maybe, if we're not Christians in the room this morning, that we would ask the same question that all of Jerusalem found themselves asking once Jesus arrived on the scene. Who is this? You see, the unfortunate reality is that more often than not, both as Christians and as non-Christians, we fail to see Jesus as he really is. We fail to do so. We see either an incomplete picture of who Jesus is or we see an entirely inaccurate picture of who Jesus is. And we see this played out for us in the text. Right after Jesus arrives, we see the people spread their cloaks on the road, cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road, and they sing songs, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then in verse 11, after asking the question, who is this? This is their response. They say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now again, that's not necessarily a bad statement, but it is an incomplete statement. It's an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. It's an incomplete understanding of what, of what Jesus is trying to say about himself in this moment in history. Yeah, sure, Jesus is prophetic. Jesus is a prophet in the truest sense of the word. But he's more than a prophet. Because he's not just speaking God's word, he is God, and he is the word that God is speaking to us. 
And so there's an incomplete sense of who Jesus is among his contemporaries, right? Those who are singing these songs to him, they, they sort of understand, but they don't quite understand who Jesus is. They're on the cusp, but the key hasn't turned yet. But what we also don't understand, and maybe what we wouldn't see at first glance in this text, is that there's also an inaccurate picture of Jesus that is causing these people to respond the way they are to him. Which, their response, and we'll talk about it later, I think is, is appropriate for Jesus. But it's still somewhat uninformed in that they have an expectation of Jesus that, that is ultimately not going to be met. So here's why these crowds are excited about Jesus. They expect Jesus to be a political revolutionary. Essentially, Jesus is the political king who will come and restore the fortunes of Israel, right? You have to remember that at this time, Israel is part of the Roman Empire, Roman rule. So it's Caesar who's king in Jerusalem, not the son of David. And so when they sing Hosanna, the son of David, what they're saying is Hosanna, our king, our political king, our, our reign and our political rule will return to us, right? Our national pride, our national identity will be restored. Our borders and beyond will grow and we will no longer be subject to the pagan Roman Empire. This is what they expect from Jesus. And so, of course, they're excited. But you see, Jesus is more than a political tool to be leveraged for the glory of Israel. He's more than that. Their picture of Jesus is inaccurate. What they wanted Jesus to be was informed by what they thought would be most liberating for them. But he's God come to fix what truly ails them in the deepest sense. And so to borrow a phrase from the dark night, <laughs> Jesus isn't the Messiah that they wanted, but he is the Messiah that they need. Now here's the thing, I think a lot of times that the, the Israelites, whether it's Old Testament or even New Testament, right, the Israelites a lot of times get a bad rap, right? We tend to scoff at them, oh, silly Israelites, if I had seen the Red Sea open before me, I would have worshipped God until my dying breath. If I had seen manna provided for me from heaven, I would have worshipped God until my dying breath. If I had seen water come out of the rock, if I had seen our entrance into the promised land, if I had seen 300 defeat the 30,000, if I, right? On and on and on we go. And we pile it on them, right? God, silly Israelites. Just dumb. We might be tempted to scoff at these people for being so unable to discern Jesus' true nature. But the truth is that we are these people. And we are these people even after coming to see Jesus' true nature in this very text. Even after coming to the knowledge of the fact that Jesus is the living Son of God, that Jesus reigns and rules over the heavens and the earth, and that he has come to secure salvation on behalf of his people, not for our gain and our glory in the world, but for our gain and our glory in his presence in eternity. Even after that, we tend to impose upon Jesus either inaccurate or incomplete expectations 
that are ultimately not a part of who he is or who he has come to be, both for us and for the world. And so we could, we could talk about many ways in which this is true of us. And so I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to kind of ask us some questions, right? What's your incomplete picture of Jesus? Maybe you walked in this morning and, and, and you said to yourself, okay, like, yeah, Jesus is a great teacher. He has strong and ad, an, a strong and admirable moral compass. He's a model of compassion. He's a, he's a great man. And I say to you, great. You're, you're, you're starting in the right place. But you haven't turned the key yet. Jesus is more than that. He's more than a prophet. He's more than someone who has come to give us a cultural IQ that allows us to live in greater harmony with other people. Or maybe you walked in the room this morning and you have an inaccurate picture of Jesus. You believe that Jesus is just a moral policeman who writes you tickets when you do bad and then lowers your insurance rate when you do good. Or maybe on the flip side of that, you have an you have a, a different conception of Jesus where Jesus is your genie that gives you the things you want while sparing you from the bad things you don't want. And so your world gets turned upside down every time something bad happens to you. And so the question I have for you this morning is, could it, could it be possible that the real Jesus may not be the Messiah you wanted or conjured, but he is the one that you need. Could it be possible, brothers and sisters, that we are living our lives in such a way that betray the fact that we don't understand Jesus for who he is, or that we understand Jesus for who he is, but we don't want him to actually be who he is. We want him to be something else. We want him to be something that we think will be better for us. Well, the good news this morning is that by God's grace, where we fail to see Jesus as he really is, he offers us scenes like this one that we've just read about in order to communicate to us just that, who he is. So who is he? Who is this Jesus? If I could sum it up in one word, I would call him a paradox. And some of you freak out and go, wait a minute, that's not rational, right? And true, within our tiny, finite brains, it's not. But in a beautiful, wonderful, and glorious way it is, because here is a king who has come in modesty. Here is a God who has come as human. Here is a Lord who has become lowly. All paradoxical. He's the king of kings, but he comes riding on a donkey. In doing so, Jesus is telling us not only who he is, I am the king, right? Jesus is saying that. But he's also telling us how he wants to be who he is. So he says, I am the king, but I'm a certain kind of king. I'm a king unlike any other king. And for those of you who think that Jesus was just a good teacher, this would be one of those that you should think, maybe he wasn't, because that's a weird thing to say. 
I'm the king. But it's tempered by the way he wants to be that king, right? He rides a donkey because he hasn't come to make war for or with his people, right? I mean, think of any other glorious moment, whether it's in TV, cinema, film, right? Or whether it's in real, actual history, right? Anytime the hero rides in, he's not coming in in a Ford Pinto, right? Caesar doesn't enter on a donkey. Caesar enters on a chariot. And not just one chariot, but hundreds of chariots filled with men of might and brawn and steel. That's not the kind of king that Jesus is. So he is a king. He's not just a king, he's the king, but he's a certain kind of king. He rides a donkey because he hasn't come to make war with or for his people, but he instead comes to carry their burdens and to work on their behalf. How ironic that Jesus is the owner of everything, but he becomes the servant of everyone. It's no coincidence that just a few short verses ago in chapter 20, Jesus says that he who would be great among you must first become your servant. Because Jesus is the greatest. And so he is the greatest servant. He owes nobody anything. But he gives everybody everything. He's worshipped and adored in the heavens, but he rides a donkey on the earth. His highness and his humility mean that even today, if we've painted inaccurate or incomplete pictures of him up to this very moment, we can come to him as he is and he will carry our burdens. He's powerful enough to grant total forgiveness and he's humble enough to offer it freely. That's good news this morning, brothers and sisters. And this is what, what I believe makes Jesus so revolutionary, right? In fact, I believe that Jesus is the only true revolutionary because he's the only person in human history who wields his might and his glory in service of the other. Every other revolution in history ends up becoming what was revolted against. The center of power simply moves. Lenin shouting power to the people and Stalin wielding the iron fist. The Americas pushing back upon England because there was no representation, but there was taxation. And yet here we are taxed and often misrepresented. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is a true revolutionary. Jesus wields his power on behalf of the others. And so he's making a bold, outrageous claim as a homeless Galilean prophet entering into the center of his culture and saying, I am your king, but this is the kind of king I am. Brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus as he truly is, it changes how we live in so many ways. So many ways. The highness of Jesus and the lowliness of Jesus 
affects how we live in so many ways. And I, I can only pick three for the sake of time. I hope that in your neighborhood parishes, not this week, but next week, right, uh, <laughs> we'll have some time to, to think through this. But I'm just going to pick three. The first thing is this. When we see Jesus for who he is, the humble king, the modest king, the lowly Lord, the crucified Messiah, when we see him for who he really is, we can obey his commands because they're no longer burdensome. Right? Look at the disciples in verse 6. What do they do? Right? Jesus says, hey, go to the next village. Tell the people that you're taking their donkey from them. Oh, and the, 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 the colt. And just tell them the Lord has need. Like, what? Essentially, right, the equivalent is, hey, um, commit grand theft auto, um, and when they ask you about it, just say, Jesus told me. Right? As if that's just sort of going to wipe the slate clean, right? Why would the disciples obey such a crazy command? They've seen Jesus for who he really is. They've seen Jesus for who he really is and so they can obey and they can obey him completely with confidence. Because they know, number one, that Jesus isn't going to lord his lordship, but when he wields it, he wields it with purpose. And so they obey. What's the second thing? Well, we can genuinely praise him for what he's done, right? If we see Jesus as he really is, then we can praise him as he should really be praised, right? We could praise him or we should praise him in such a way that reflects who he actually is. And this is where I think they don't get it so wrong in verse 9. When they sing, Hosanna in the highest, right? Now, what we don't know and what I don't have a ton of time to explain is, is that the, the phrase Hosanna in the highest essentially means this. Hosanna means save. So save us. They're shouting, save us, right? And when they say in the highest, they mean in the best way. So here's the thing. We're, we're different from this culture and this time. A lot of times what we would say, right, we would say, I need to be saved in the deepest way. And when we say deepest, we mean at the center, at the core, right? At the bottom of who we are, right? We need to be saved in the best way, the deepest way. Well, for them, it's the opposite. It's the highest. So when they say, Hosanna in the highest, they're saying, save us in the best way. And Jesus came and did that. That's what the celebration of this whole week is about, that Jesus came and he saved us in the best way. He saved us from what we really needed saving from so that we can worship him for that and not the ancillary things that we might hope to get from him. Right? We can start worshiping him for who he is rather than what, what we think he brings to us. And so that, that then changes when we worship him. It means we don't just worship him when things are going good, but we worship him even when things are going bad. Because Jesus is who he is regardless of our circumstance. Regardless of whether we're in captivity in Egypt or whether we're walking through the dry ground of the Red Sea. 
When we see Jesus for who he really is, we can begin to worship him as he is meant to be worshiped. And I don't know about you, but I think that means shouts and praises and songs and clapping and hands lifted high this morning. That this is the king that we serve. And then third and finally is this. When we see Jesus as he truly is, as he really is, we can be confidently unimpressive. We can be confidently unimpressive. Here's what I mean by that. This moment right here in Jesus' life, this is as pretentious and flashy as Jesus gets. A donkey with no saddle, right? (laughs) Being led into the city by a bunch of pilgrims. That the culturally, those who had been in the city year-round would look at and go, oh, all those dirty folks are here again. All the tourists from the suburbs are here for the big party, and then they're going to leave. Right? But Jesus doesn't come to the party in the finest robes, with the biggest horse, right? Trying to impress those who he comes to make himself known to. No, no, no. He's utterly unpretentious. He's utterly unimpressive. And so if this is as pretentious and flashy as Jesus gets, my guess is that we shouldn't feel the need to be more pretentious or more flashy than Jesus is. And I mean that in in two ways. I mean that personally, right? So what I mean by that is that on an individual level, you and I should be so confident in what Jesus has done on our behalf and is doing for us and with us. We don't feel the need to impress people with either how much money we have or what kind of clothes we wear or what this, that, or the other we could potentially add to our resume or to our 401k. Because while those things may impress our contemporaries. They don't impress the high and humble king. That should give us a, a sense of freedom, right? I think for us this morning, for some of us, that, that is Jesus saving us in the best way from ourselves or from the expectations of others. So we can rest in the confidence of who we are in Jesus. But I think the same is true of us Corporately, right? I think there's always a temptation to ask. And this is not just from church members. It's, it's also from church staff, people like me who work full-time in this endeavor, in, in building this local body, this, this institution, right? How can we be more impressive? How can we be more cutting edge? How can we be more flashy? Why isn't our music better? Can we get a new microphone? Can we do that, right? What can we do to greater reflect our excellence. And while I don't want to denigrate or set aside the fact that we do want to provide an environment that is good and reflective of God's worth to us, at the same time, if that's what we're depending on, if we're depending upon flash and pomp, 
then we're not winning people to Jesus as he truly is. We can be confidently unimpressive. We can be confident that even in mediocre comeback sermons, Jesus can work glorious things. That if Jesus can use an ass, he can use you. That he can use us. That he can use us to shake the foundations of this city because he has come among us. And that he might shake the foundations in such a way that the people in our midst would ask, who is this? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Again, thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would see you for who you really are, high and humble, lordly and lowly, Messiah and crucified. And Lord, that we would rejoice, that that means that we can freely come to you, that Jesus is powerful enough to grant forgiveness and he's also humble enough to offer it. That of all of our many slights to him, he sees none of them and he extends his hand of grace to us this morning. And I pray, Father, that as we come to the table and we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, Lord, that we would sense your utter acceptance of us, your stooping to meet us, and yet your power and glory to accomplish all that you have promised you would accomplish. And I pray, Lord, for some of the people this morning asking, who is this, that this morning they would see clearly who you are. And I pray for those of us who are Christians in the room, or that maybe we need to reevaluate and ask that same question, who is this? And that we might be inspired to worship you by virtue of your glory. We love you. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name.